This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Our topic for today's discussion is the supply chain disruption during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we are joined by Dr. Preeti Stosh, who is Associate Professor of Medicine and a consultant in the Division of Internal Medicine. He's a Medical Director of Emergency Management in Rochester, Minnesota, and Associate Program Director for Recruitment and Marketing in the Internal Medicine Residency Program at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Welcome, Dr. Tosh. Hey, thank you for having me. Pritish, we were all taken over by the whole emergence of pandemic of COVID, and it looked like a huge human drama of human tragedy. And, and then came the whole aspect of personal protective equipment and the shortage of it. That led to additional discussion on the topic of disruption of the supply chain. So this word supply chain is very new to physicians who are used to taking a history, seeing a patient, feeling the pulse, checking the O2 sats and doing everything that we do. But we were told, no, you can't get PPE because there's a disruption in the supply chain. And the disruption was not local. We said, well, where do we go to see it? It was not even regional. It was national, international. So since you're an expert in this area, I want to ask you a question on why should we, the physicians and the healthcare providers be concerned about the medical supply chain, especially during the vulnerabilities and times of vulnerabilities like what we are seeing now in COVID-19 pandemic. Sure, and I can go way back. And, and you know, I love talking about supply chain vulnerability. Usually when I talk about supply chain vulnerability, people just go straight to sleep, except when I talk about it during COVID and talking about uh, your patients may not get the drugs that they need or uh, you may not have PPE, then people really start paying attention. And this goes way back. And it's not just related to supply chain of uh, personal protective equipment. Pardon me, I'm gonna go off on a pretty long tangent. Over time, it's uh, medical institutions, we, were trying, we have you know, thin margins. And if somebody is trying to sell you uh, widget A, and they, it's usually 50 bucks, and somebody else says, hey, I can make widget A for, and it'll cost five bucks. Um, just based on that, people are gonna buy five, uh, the $5 widget A. Except what is not known is how can you possibly make widget eight for, you know, for five bucks? Or if it turns out you're using uh, offshore supplies or you're, you get these economies of scale so that you're sort of driving out all other competitors. So now there's only one person, one company that's making widget A and it's, require, it's getting parts from multiple different areas of the world where it can be done cheapest. Um, you know, suddenly, uh, widget A, even though it costs $5, um, becomes very vulnerable. And that any anything anywhere essentially in the world could really make that uh, widget not available. Um, and so back when you're paying 50 bucks, um, it would have supported a much broader, much safer uh, supply chain for whatever widget A is. But just because of uh, low margins within healthcare over time, you've sort of box out everyone else who has and sort of disadvantaging those companies that have more solid supply chain in mind. Um, and so if something happens, then 
all you're left with is this $5 maker of widget A. And if you were to have done the math and you would, would have known this was vulnerable to begin with and realized, well, this is a, this is a life-saving product. And um, if we are option to either not have it, in which case, what is what does that cost in terms of life and things like that? Or we need to stockpile it, in which case, what is the cost of stockpiling it? And so when you put those numbers on it, widget A for $5 is suddenly becoming more and more expensive. And if you had just bought widget A for $50 up front, you may have likely saved a lot of money in the long run. Um, and the more companies that across the world that are uh, trying to buy widget A, um, you, you start really reducing the number of manufacturers and essentially all you have left are those who can get the benefit of economies of scale um, and making basically the, the least expensive but most vulnerable product. And we in healthcare have sort of uh, painted ourselves into a corner over decades by doing this. You know, how does it come to disasters? And we think about um, you know, IV fluids. Those are commonly used, life-saving, uh, if you will, medication, right? So much so that we don't even call it a medication. It's fluids, right? Everyone gets fluids. But during Hurricane Maria, then we suddenly realized that pretty much all of the IV fluids uh, are made in uh, Puerto Rico. Um, and we didn't know that, right? The, we didn't have visibility in how, into how fragile the supply chain is for something that like, important for healthcare. And you know, Puerto Rico is in our backyard, right? And this is a, you know, a, a US territory. And we had no visibility into it until suddenly there's a hurricane and we don't have IV fluids. And so you know, that's a, a, a common uh, medication, if you will, um, in a, that's being made in a, in a US territory, US soil, and we had no idea. And, and now we add the complexities of, uh, of international sourcing. Uh, you know, 60% of the world's insulin is actually made in a single manufacturing in, in, in Scandinavia. And you know, if you suddenly lose you know, insulin, like people will die pretty quickly. Um, and so that's sort of the background. That's baseline. Now you add a pandemic, right? Where everyone is gonna be looking for the same thing. And even in the absence of real issues of supply chain vulnerability, now you just like weren't look at into manufacturing capacity. Right, so N95 masks, these respirators, um, uh, on a daily basis, most healthcare institutions go through very few, uh, to the point where it often wouldn't, you know, you could stockpile a normal use of N95s in, you know, a room of this office for most healthcare institutions. But in the setting of a pandemic, you need a whole lot more. And so the manufacturing capacity to make the amount of PPE you need for a pandemic is not supported by normal, uh, normal purchasing. Uh, you know, Mayo Clinic, we, we did a bunch of pandemic scenarios modeling uh, about 10,000 different um, pandemics. So this was several years ago and seeing, well, how much of these different things do we need? How many ventilators would we need? How many uh, N95s would we need? So we try to say, well, uh, how can we get hit 95% of the predicted scenarios and have that on hand? Well, turns out that in order to get 95% of the scenarios, we would have, you know, we would have had by you know, 
warehouses upon warehouses just to store this stuff, knowing that we would throw most of it away. And so this is an expense balance. Uh, we ended up, I think, hitting it about the 75th percentile and having that stuff on hand, which in the end really, really helped us out and, and uh, here at Mayo in terms of having uh, at least enough N95s on, on hand. And then also that decreases the demand for everyone else because we're not, if you will, ask, needing more, uh, at least not up front. Um, so that's this issues of supply chain vulnerability to begin with, but also manufacturing capacity put us in, in the pickle that we're in. So what you're saying, Pratish, um, is not only we have to know who our suppliers are, we also have to know who's supplying the suppliers. So there seems to be a chain of events which we have been blindsided. We just went for the one supplier and why we are very vulnerable only if we have one supply or if we just go to the cost, the lowest cost uh, of production source where everybody's going to the source and, and we are going to get overwhelmed. But we are a bunch of smart people. I mean, yeah. we've got all these Hurricane Katrina, uh, we've survived all these things, but in a, in, a, in a true world, can somebody even model what could happen in a pandemic? I mean, we now know we have all the, all the information. I, I think one of the ways we uh, decrease the need for N95 is put everybody back at homes. Uh, don't come to work, don't go to school, lock down everything. Um, don't say hello to your neighbor, wear a mask, social distancing. Um, that way we dealt with our supply chain inadequacies just by containing people. But that's probably not the way to go around in future. Um, in the last three months, how are you seeing the supply chain issues shape up? What are we doing in the in US and other countries? Are we helping each other? Are we shifting resources? What are we doing? Yeah, I think this is a, a big wake up call, um, especially when you're looking at uh, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, and the, the manufacturing capacity. And we're looking at sort of supply chain vulnerability. I, I look at it uh, differently in terms of what, one is uh, sort of the, the supply chain all the way down to um, its uh, basic components, the um, basic ingredients that eventually are made. And, uh, and then also there's the manufacturing capacity. And so I'll talk about both of these. When you're talking about the supply chain vulnerability, um, we were missing two things. One, we didn't know, and it was intentionally, it's not, it's not visible to, to the end consumer of, again, back to widget A, uh, who makes all the, you know, we, we may know who, who delivers it to us, we might know where it's manufactured or finally manufactured, but we don't have the visibility into right down to the initial basic uh, um, ingredients where that is made. So we actually don't have visibility into the, the true supply chains all the way down um, of a lot of critical products. Um, we also didn't have the analytics. Like even if we, even if we had that, like we wouldn't have the capacity or the, really the capability to uh, layer on weather patterns, geopolitical instability, uh, you know, volcanic activity, all these things, right? Um, so that, um, you know, as I mentioned, most of the world's insulin is made in one, one factory in, in Scandinavia. And of course, you know, like Iceland, let's say there's huge volcanoes there, it's gonna, and, um, and may, maybe we have a, a difficult time getting insulin. Um, we wouldn't have had the, 
um, neither the the knowledge nor the the capability of, of analysis to overlay like volcanism on top of um, of this understanding until now. So I think now we have the analytics, um, you know, artificial intelligence, all those things, whatever you want to call it. Um, but what we're missing is the visibility, and uh, you know, there's no federal mandate for uh, critical critical medications, critical supplies. Uh, to disclose where it's coming from. And so this, the way around this either is some sort of federal mandate or health organizations essentially demanding, look, we're only gonna buy your product if you give us visibility into where this is coming from. Um, what that does by sharing that kind of information, um, it gives more knowledge and more power into the consumer and the consumer being healthcare organizations um, to say, well, this person's selling me a $5, this widget, widget A is for $5. This other one's selling for $50. Is $5 really a bargain? And if you start looking into, oh, this is a really vulnerable product. And if we we're gonna go with a $5 widget, we'd need to spend a lot of money on, on uh, stockpiling and things like that. Then that $50 widget might turn out to be really, really cheap. The other end, we're talking about uh, sort of manufacturing capacity, um, especially I think focusing on N95s is a good one, just because we use so little in general. You, you would use these respirators for tuberculosis patients, and you know, thankfully we don't have just tuberculosis running around all the time. And so if the manufacturing capacity is basically what is normal use. Um, and so what we had started to do at, at, at Mayo is, is move towards um, Rather than buying, let's say, a, a big, a big um, stockpile every five years, depending on uh, how, how much we use, yeah, it's almost uh, like a, a system going back, informing the suppliers that we have depleted our resources, sent back, just like Walmart does and everybody else does. Right, but rather than doing it as a big, oh, we need we need this many for our for our stockpile, to to look in that and say, well. Let's divide that out over, let's say the, the N95 uh, expires in five years. Let's divide out that stockpile request over five years. Either do purchase it every year, you know, do, you know, 20% every year for five years or 10% every six months for five years. Right. Um, right. And so what you're doing, and if everybody did that, then we would increase the manufacturing capacity um, so that in the setting of a pandemic, they can actually increase the manufacturing capacity to meet the needs because what people are actually doing is ordering what they would need uh, over a period of time in case a pandemic were to happen over five years. Um, and then uh, it's sort of changing um, how institutions buy things, how they look at cost. Um, and so this, I know this is a long-winded answer to a very short question, what we found COVID-19, it does not discriminate. I mean, we, we just had an, a podcast on the health disparities. I mean, yeah. COVID-19 is involving everybody. So how much of this supply chain thinking process has to be done by institution, an A institution or institution by institution, as opposed to, as you have seen in your thing, the federal government, how much should the federal government step in and when should they step in uh, is there a threshold uh, or is it like the federal government only comes when I say, help, help, I'm dying, I'm sinking. What is the threshold? I mean, we have learned in the last three months, almost everybody is going to the federal government now. Uh, but how much of planning should every hospital do? And what is the minimum, like, like you're saying, the incremental uh, 
uh, step up purchasing. how much how much of that planning should go or or do we not plan at all or just look for the government for help and bailing us out yeah i uh, as someone who used to work for the federal government um i i wouldn't put um you know this isn't this is not a responsibility of just the government Right. I think we all need to take responsibility for this. And this includes healthcare organizations that are purchasing. This includes manufacturers. This includes distributors, as well as regulatory agencies within the federal government. Because um, there's things that we can do as an institution, right? Um, instead of just taking things at face value and, and going for the lowest bidder, um, really ask for uh, you know, where, where is all this made? And, and, and then now that we have the analytics, and even if a company, if it, or if it was a smaller healthcare institution doesn't have the analytics, they can always partner with a group that does. Um, and um, if enough healthcare organizations um, start having this mindset of uh, really thinking about the, the supply chain in, in, in their purchasing, especially of, of products used in, in, in critical illness, then you can change um, how business is done. Um, if it's just one organization, that's probably not going to do it. But you really need to have a lot of a lot of folks involved. Good news, bad news. You know, bad news is we've been having increasing amount of of, of shortages. Uh, you know, I, I think of an example um, uh, during the Beijing Olympics, because they uh, the Chinese government wanted Beijing to look pretty clean and not having smog. And if you've been to Beijing during a normal time, it's hard to avoid smog. Uh, they shut down all the make all the factories in, in 100 kilometers of Beijing, mm -hmm. which included uh, the largest manufacturers of nitrile gloves. So for a completely, if you will, elective event of, of, a, of a Olympics, we had a shortage of of gloves, mm -hmm. uh, and you know people don't we don't think about that. We've had an increase in the amount of shortages. Most of it's related to actually sterile injectable generic drugs shortages across the board, uh, which is bad news. But the good news is that because of that, I think it, it, we're uh, getting it to a precipice where people are w willing to make change. Um, you know, healthcare organizations, now, now that the, the analytic capacity is there, uh, should be demanding to, uh, that we know these things and, and be able to at least partner up to have the analytics together uh, to make a sort of smart purchases uh, you know, across, not it doesn't have to be across the board, right? It doesn't matter like who's manufacturing this pen, if you will. But if somebody's making you know, pressers or medications that are needed for critical illness, we really need to step up. When we are looking at um, what causes this kind of situation, the pandemic, yes, there is cardiology who cases, and then there is thrombophilia cases, all these kind of things, which COVID is coming. But it comes to infections. I mean, there had never been a pandemic of strokes or heart failures. It's always been infection that has precipitated heart failure, MIs and everything else. And of course the need of those medicines have gone up, but uh, infection is the big one. So going forward, when we are doing a supply chain analysis or even a hospital is contracting with a company uh, for supply chain, how important is it for them to know the entire group or who their partners are, where are they coming? And also to have some kind of an kind of a buy-in that if you are in similar crisis, do you have the economies of scale to ramp up your production? Or are we going to be in the same situation? I know it's going to be a tough call for many, most companies, and that will really encourage the big companies to become even bigger. Uh, but at some point, 
some kind of discussion has to take place. And you guys are the leaders in infectious disease. And I can suspect infectious disease, critical care, these are the two groups that has been most affected to lead this discussion. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, rather than infectious diseases, I think the best opinion is those of the critical care docs. Um, in some ways, if it's a viral infection, like um, if, if it's influenza, yeah, uh, we can think about the um, stockpiling and the manufacturing of, of oseltamivir or other antiviral drugs. But you know, until very recently, we didn't really know what, what sort of antiviral drugs we would use for uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the agent that causes uh, COVID-19. Uh, but we do know about good supportive care. And uh, no matter which of these pandemics it's going to be, uh, good supportive care is probably going to be the underlying uh, thing that's going to save the most lives. Um, um, and so what are the medications you need to support somebody on a ventilator? And starting with those, right? Starting thinking about what do I need to support a critically ill patient? And what do I, what are the, the next level is what do I do to keep uh, to keep somebody from getting into critical illness. Uh, and very little of this is infectious diseases. Um, you know, maybe you make sure you have some antibiotics on hand that uh, you know, are broad enough uh, in case you're talking about just uh, bacterial pneumonia on top of uh, viral pneumonitis um, for whatever pandemic it is. But most of the things you're talking about, not just medications, but supplies, um, uh, you know, ventilator circuits, for example. Everyone talks about, do I have enough ventilators? Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot that goes into uh, ventilating a patient yes. uh, that have nothing to do, have very little to do with the ventilator itself, right? If you Oxygen. don't have enough respiratory therapists, you don't have a ventilator. Exactly. If you don't have a pulmonologist or critical care doctor, you don't have a ventilator. If you don't have the tube, so the ventilator circuit, going from the ventilator to the patient, you don't have a ventilator. I think back to uh, 2009 during the influenza pandemic. And uh, by that point, within the days, it was very clear that the virus had entered into the United States. But people were calling for shutting down the border with Mexico because, well, the initial cases were found in Mexico. And then, of course, days later in Southern California. But if they had shut down the border with Mexico, turns out almost all of the ventilator circuits used in the United States are made, are manufactured in Mexico. And so the virus would have been here, we just wouldn't have been able to ventilate people, um, even though we had plenty of respiratory therapists, critical care doctors, and, uh, and ventilators. Um, but yeah, it's, I would start with what are the, the things that our critical care doctors need to support the patients. So other thing which came out in the discussion, when we look at the, the hotspots of which hospitals are seeing more patients and are in crisis. Yes, there's uh, the ventilator problem, the respiratory therapist problem. I haven't heard about oxygen supply, which is a big problem. Uh, but, the, but the planning, uh, but the pre-COVID planning, the preparedness on how good your hospital is in preparing, what would you have to say uh, about the level of talk goes on during so-called peacetime when you don't have these kind of war-like uh, uh, infections going on, what should an infectious disease doctor do? What kind of team yeah. uh, would you call for disaster management, ER, critical care? Who all would you have around the table? And, and really, uh, looks like the hard work has to happen even before the disaster strikes. Right. Um, 
you know, one of my favorite quotes is, and I'm going to um, paraphrase it from Eisenhower, is that plans are useless, but planning is everything. So you may have a plan for what you're going to do, but the real event, the reason it's an emergency is because you didn't really, it didn't fit the, the plan. Right, but the process you go through in planning is really valuable because you've learned about what you're, one, one, who needs to be around the table, what needs to be done. So even if you have plans, that may not be what you end up doing, but it's the process of planning that's really valuable. Another way to, that uh, Mike Tyson had a good quote with this is that everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And it can seem really daunting for a healthcare organization to think, what do I have to, like, this is just an explosion of everything, right? How do I even categorize what I have to prepare for? Um, and uh, there's some very basic ways we think about it. And essentially, all the stuff you need to take care of a patient can be boiled down to three things. So it's staff, space, or supplies. Um, and you start working on those and think about, and then we think about, uh, uh, conventional care, um, contingency care, and then crisis care. And normal everyday operations, that is uh, conventional care. And that's related to staff, space, and supplies. But as you start to plan, think about, well, what are my plans in case I don't have enough staff? What can we do, right? Uh, change our nursing ratios. Um, you know, maybe, uh, there's, you know, can we move patients uh, or physicians um, let's say from an outpatient area that may, be, that may not be needed to an inpatient area. Like how do we start to shift this? Um, where are similarities and skills um, similar enough that, that, we can, um, that we can move people appropriately? Uh, during the pandemic, you know, we are very clear, quickly we're needing more folks in the hospital, but also this whole new role of following up with, with COVID patients. And your, your division of general internal medicine stepped in and you have doctors who's, uh, if you will, their, their, their clinics were shut down, stepping in and doing these things. So in some ways, we couldn't have planned exactly for that plan because we didn't know that what COVID would end up doing. But this idea of shifting physicians around and shifting other staff around, that's part of our basic plans. Um, to keep us from, at, and what we do is maximize your conventional care as much as you can. You know, push that limit of what is usual standard of care using usual approaches. But at some point, either staff, space, or supplies is going to limit your ability. You're going to get limited just because of the number of patients, or let's say you're not getting enough um, N95s, let's say, in which case normally you would wear one per patient. But um, if that became... Uh, if you didn't have enough, then there's other things you can do. For example, cohorting the patients together. So everyone's wearing the people who come in, we're basically wearing one N95 for the entire, uh, for the entire time uh, with something disposable on top of these sort of things. But the idea of uh, if your supplies run out, how do you prevent yourself from getting to crisis care? Convention, uh, conventional care is usual business. Contingency care is where you make uh, sort of non-usual business uh, decisions um, with normal standards of care in mind. When you're at crisis care, then you, uh, you throw out st normal standards of care and you're in crisis standards of care where you basically you're just trying to maximize the best good for the most people. Some people would call that triage. That's like me ducking Mike Tyson in the room. He's throwing punches after punches and I'm not waiting him to make the decision for me. 
I'm just, I'm just ducking and running around. But one of the things also this crisis brought, which we never anticipated, is the use of remote monitoring devices. A whole bunch of technology came in. Uh, innovation started coming in, like, just like you said, putting a bunch of patients together and using one N95 so that the personals don't have to change their PPE. Uh, but there were these horrible images which we saw in magazines where all the doctors had all kinds of scars and impressions of the N95s on their face. And, and so they had to deal with it. But um, that kind of planning which you said is so very crucial during pre-COVID times and pre-any pandemic time that uh, do you think it's happening routinely? I mean, how do you, as a busy infectious disease doctor, managing your outpatient, inpatient, your residency, and your other uh, responsibilities, cut yourself? Is there a process of getting yourself away from these responsibilities and once a year, twice a year, sit down mandatory and say, well, this is our supply chain. Uh, that the supply chain is directly with correlating with customer satisfaction. And part of the customer you realize for infectious disease is us, the other type of physicians. We're not infectious disease doctors. So we are your customers and the patients, the other customers. Customer satisfaction, hospital's reputation, the whole public, uh, kind of a persona that this is a hospital which is not prepared for a pandemic. It gives us a bad image and it stays with us for years and patients will not come in that kind of hospital. So that's so very important, that role to do. Do you think it's happening at the higher level? What is being discussed at the critical care infectious disease? Um, I mean, in the national government level. Sure. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of questions within that question. Um, and a lot of hospitals are at capacity on a daily basis, right? That uh, they are um, maximizing conventional care every day. Um, and so their uh, capacity of, of doubling you know, their abilities is, is you know, they have to do some really interesting things in order to get that done. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't plan for it. And um, you know, one of the things we say in emergency management is that um, you know, if, if you don't do enough contingency planning, you will find yourself in crisis care very quickly. And that there are things you can always, you can do ahead of time. Uh, but you have to have, uh, the institution has to have enough sort of foresight to give the, the resources to do that. Um, here at Mayo, we've been quite blessed in having the, you know, the foresight of, and also the hindsight of having gone through several pandemics since our inception of knowing what this, this will look like. And we have experts within the supply chain who are working on this all the time in the background. Um, and of course, in emergency management, we're, um, we're involved in thinking about, well, how best do we prepare for this? How much do we even need? Um, and working together, uh, you know, I think about this project we did where we, uh, we did Monte Carlo simulation for about 10,000 different pandemic scenarios. That, that was actually anticipating uh, influenza, but it turns out that those were, a lot of those were really helpful as we were subsequently addressing uh, COVID-19. I think we um, uh, you know, um, didn't have, I think we underestimated how much uh, procedural masks we would use. We didn't think everyone would be wearing a mask all the time. 
right? Um, and so there's things we just didn't plan for, but uh, because at least we were thinking about it ahead of time, I think we we were uh, um, thankfully in, in, in pretty good shape, um, um, especially in terms of uh, our PPE. Um, but that was because of very intentional uh, planning that went on for years before the actual pandemic came. You're right. I mean, most hospitals are running at capacity. We work lean and you don't have to have much fluff around so that, you know, those, those cost money. So you, you get to lose money if you have excess capacity for everything, supplies and, but then during this COVID, also the innovation, which I saw many hospitals do is having opened up other centers apart from their own hospitals, the gymnasiums got opened up uh, in New York, the Central Park, they started making some makeshift, uh, such kind of a tent in Wuhan, they built up a whole hospital in a couple of days. Uh, so these kind of things, that's the disaster management which happened, which I think we have learned a lot from this. But coming back um, to an essential question, now that you have really explained, one of my questions, I don't need to ask you about why physicians need to know about supply chain management. And the next time I go to the ward, I look at my mask and I'm not gonna look at it the same way. Yeah. Uh, when I'm strapping those uh, elastic bands around, I'm thinking, where are these parts coming? Because Dr. Tosh told me to be aware of it. But what can be done in future? Um, and that's something which is like, uh, almost like a Star Wars kind of thing. What can be done in future to mitigate these supply chain vulnerabilities? Should it be our reliance on Mexico for plastic tubes and China for our nitrile gloves or the most ineffective way of doing things uh, in the current management was to do everything yourself in the same country? So in the past, we thought division of labor, send it to different places, economies of scale, you keep the price down and that's the way things work. But looks like this is the kind of thing that my great, great grandfather did when he got out of the cave and he took his bow and arrow uh, and, and he really, uh, if he didn't bring home uh, a deer or something, all of us starved. And now we don't have to because I can go to Hy-Vee or some other grocery store and buy my stuff. So are we going back to something which we have done hundreds of years ago, be self-reliant in everything? I don't think so. I think the big thing is uh, having us a better understanding of the complexity of it all, right? So the complexity of the supply chain has, has grown a lot, but our understanding of that complexity as a consumer has not. Um, and so you know, we don't know what the, the event, the, the, the actual source is for a lot uh, or the sources or for a lot of the critical products we have. Um, and once we uh, start to get that, and either that's done through legislation or just through collaborations with health organizations and purchasing, that like we're not going to, you know, we collectively demand that you just tell us this, otherwise we're not going to buy it. Um, that and having the analytics. And so, um, if you if you if you could understand ahead of time, like well, uh, you know, volcanism in Iceland may make it hard to get um, uh, insulin or may delay the insulin, um, then, then you know that, that if, the, the, if there's an eruption, well, then you start thinking about uh, mobilizing other things and think about other routes to get things from, from Scandinavia in terms of the, the insulin. Um, so in this case, knowledge is power. 
um, and the analytics are power. Whether this is done through government or through um, through the end uh, user uh, you know, teaming up together, that remains to be seen. Um, but in terms of uh, pandemic preparedness and having these plans, contingency plans, that is something every organization needs to be doing. Um, and if they weren't good at it, COVID may have uh, been an extinction event for those organizations. Because the ones that are really going to survive this well are those who um, had the wherewithal to plan ahead of time. Um, I completely and, agree with you. That's what we are seeing. And then the last supply chain question which is coming is people are asking is, how do you get a, a company to make vaccine for 6 billion people in the world? And the answer is maybe there are different companies in different countries need to bring a slightly different variation of the vaccine which works. What works in a company in EU, European Union, which I think, I don't know how many billion they have, there are a couple of billion there and China is doing there, or the 1.4 billion, US has 350 million. Um, so how do you balance supply chain issues when you have the first vaccine hitting the market and saying, this country has a vaccine? And yeah. so how do we all get the vaccine? And yeah, and there's some reality to that, right? And uh, you know, let's say the, the first really effective vaccine comes out of China. Um, the rest of the world, uh, we will say, oh, you, you, you got to please share with this with us. And the Chinese will say, well, we will vaccinate our, for our own first. But you know, if that seems harsh, if the U.S. creates the vaccine first. I think Americans would expect that Americans will be vaccinated first, then we'll give it to the rest of the world. And so there's got, there's, um, we got to be cognizant of uh, what the mutual self-interest here is. And, um, and if you will capitalize on mutual self-interest and, and find ways that perhaps the, 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 you know, the, the first group that is able to create an effective vaccine is somehow compensated by uh, for you know sharing its know-how with other folks. Uh, th this is getting way out of my uh, my area of expertise and getting into economics. Um, but uh, you know, ahead of 2009, uh, there are all these agreements about uh, you know if 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 there's a pandemic of influenza that we would share the first vaccines equally across the world, and that is not what happened. Right, vaccines were developed in the United States and Americans got them first. Um, and I think it's naive to think that that's not gonna happen again. Thank you, Dr. Tarr. So today's discussion was on supply chain disruption during COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we were discussing with Dr. Pritish Tosh, uh, who's a consultant in infectious disease and uh, um, an expert in this area. We learned a lot about what supply chain is about and how even before a crisis happened, having some form of plan, uh, definitely a, a, a plan which may or may not work, but planning, the process of planning and getting a team uh, arranged before these things happen, uh, pandemics happen is so very important. And I'm, I'm really grateful to you for touching that hospitals which don't pay attention to it, just get caught up in their daily workload, which is intense by all measures, uh, will have a hard time surviving uh, these kind of pandemics and they'll have a hard time convincing their patients to come in. So thank you for, for all the wisdom and, and uh, the knowledge that you imparted. I think we're going to look more towards you and leaders like you to kind of 
educate us on the complexity of the supply chain and, and how everything is correlated. And the other thing which you mentioned is supply chain is not linear. It's not that somebody mentioned like A makes it and then B goes it and it's a linear fashion. What you really said that there's a web, there's a network of companies which make it. So even you take one of the network away and everybody, uh, you get to feel uh, the effect. So that's truly what is happening now. But hopefully we are going to be getting a better handle of it. Thank you. If you enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks, please subscribe, stay healthy, and I'll see you back next week.